This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. You're listening to the Panel Borders Clear Spot on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB in London. On today's show, here's my interview with Rachel Ball, the graphic novelist behind The Inflatable Woman, and also a veteran cartoonist who contributed to the seminal music and comics magazine Deadline in the late 80s and early 90s. The Inflatable Woman is a gargantuan, magical realist graphic novel about a zookeeper suffering from breast cancer, depicted as a wry slice of life amongst singing penguins, unreliable lighthouse keepers, and tearful doctors in Rachel's inimitable style. My interview with Rachel was recorded at Cartoon County in Brighton, a meeting for Sussex-based and any other cartoonists who wish to come along, at Northern Lights Scandinavian Pub in the Lanes in Brighton, so you'll have to forgive the background noise. Ladies and gentlemen, um, welcome to the first Cartoon County of 2016. Um, our, our guest tonight is the wonderful uh, Rachel Ball. You first kind of broke into comics in the late 80s, early 90s, with strips in Deadline, and also you were in a number of uh, self-published feminist anthologies, uh, alongside our absent uh, founder member, Corinne Perlman, um, time to time. How did you get into comics in the first place? Um, I think the first sort of cartoony stuff I did was actually when I was at college, and I was at college in Brighton, doing expressive arts. I mean, it's sort of 83 to 86, so a really long time ago. That's actually um, the name of course. Uh, well, it might have changed its name. It was either it was Expressive Arts then, I think it became Creative Arts. What I art think it's still arts? going. Um, you did some form of performance, like dance or drama or music, and Liz Agus uh, was our dance teacher. Um, she's a really amazing dancer and choreographer. And then the rest of the time you paint and you do art history. So I was doing a lot of abstract painting, and then towards the end of the course, I got into doing these little graphic things, which I didn't really do anything with. Um, and then I moved to Manchester and didn't know what I was doing for about a year. And um, and then there was an advert in the Listings magazine, which was City Life. Yeah, that doesn't exist anymore. Um, and they were looking for a cartoonist. Mm. So I entered this competition. And I went in. Uh, I got a call, and I went in to see them. And they said, "Do you want the good news or the bad news?" And I thought, like, "Oh, the good news." And they went, "Oh, you could be our regular cartoonist." Uh, and the bad news is, we don't pay anything. <laughs> so I worked for them for two years for free, uh, and then they started paying me. I think twenty pounds. I think for every strip. Um, and yeah, so that was how that went. And I collected up the strips and I sent them to Deadline. Mm. And then I think it was just good timing as well because they were brilliant they were so just sort of talking heads I was very inspired by Claire Bretichet who's brilliant to what she does so I was it was quite um imitative uh and then I started looking at other work there and thinking oh actually I could be more playful and so I started trying out different things Mm. and got into yeah more surreal stuff like a strip called Box City mm. I used to do and then I did a female detective one called Ruby Chan mm. and sort of Margaret Atwood inspired one called Jessica's House yeah. so yeah well if, if uh, the inflated woman sells like gangbusters do you think you might do a collection of some of your old strips I, I don't know I mean one or two people have asked me that and that, that would be great but I suppose it's so long ago I'm not necessarily that proud of it mm. so there's I don't well, know I mean Nick Abadzis collected his old strips yeah know, I just think I think that was, I think that I don't know I, I think they work really well mm. his stuff is great and I think I can I look at my stuff from then and I just see lots of weaknesses mm. I think it might work better if it was in a collection, you know, and there was a few. That's a bit shooting yourself in the foot, really, isn't it? You're just like, yeah, that was fantastic. But, um, yeah, I'm not sure. I'd probably weed a lot of stuff out. I, I mean, I googled your work um, from back then, and there are very few images on the internet. Yeah. Um, but it did seem that you used uh, more of a 
like th there's lots of kind of cross hatching and shading in the inflatable woman. Well, back then it just seemed like you used a simple ink line. Yeah. And so it was more cartoony. Yeah, I probably would have been happy to do pencil then, but people mm. generally said, oh, it won't reproduce very well, so you need to do ink in some way. So that was kind of why I've always been happier painting or in pencil, really. Mm. I'm still intrigued by this expressive arts course. I've never heard of a course that encourages you to do performance art and visual arts at the same time. It sounds a really interesting because it's stretching different parts yeah. of the brain at the same time and also I'm intrigued because some people have talked about comics as being an expressive art that there is some sort of formative nature to the act of representing yourself on the page mm. would you say that there was any crossover between the disciplines um, yeah possibly I, mean, I think the good thing about the course was it very much encouraged you to not limit yourself and to be very open um, and our dance teacher was very into Pina Bausch um, Pina Brausch is a great, I don't know if anyone's seen the film, Pina B, which is just incredible. Just go see it if you haven't seen it. Um, but it's that really, it's really playful with creativity in every way when you're watching how she uh, constructed her choreographed pieces. And I think that's a fantastic way to approach anything creative. Mm. Anything is allowed as long as you can justify it <coughs> and you're not just sticking it in to be... Uh, shocking or impressive or slick, you know that. That yeah. So I think that encouraged us a lot during the course. To mm. um, I ended up doing lots of narrative dance pieces, which again was leading into doing cartoon strips. I think. Mm. I can't remember what the question was. So I've gone off. No, I, I think you answered it. it. <laughs> so uh, the inflatable woman. It's quite an impressive term. It can yes. stop a bullet. Yes. Um, Open doors. <laughs> It's obviously somewhat based on your life experiences, mm. and I believe it also represents um, a significant gap in time since you last drew any cartoons uh, by, for consumption by the public. I mean, what made you want to return to, to comics? Was it because you'd undergone a significant life experience that you wanted to document it in some way? Um, I think it's a funny route. I mean, I'd been working for Deadline for four years, so I'd done mm. stuff monthly, mm. and I kind of felt the urge to do comics was satisfied mm. by that. And then I lost Could the job. I know satisfied. it's bizarre. I lost the job at Deadline, mm. and then they wanted to hire new people to keep it going for a bit longer. Um, and at that time, it was just, oh my God, I'm going to support myself. So I went into illustration, and that was a really useful experience. And then after I had my daughter, then it was okay, but it gets sensible, you need to bring some proper money in. So I went to teaching. Mm. Um, and then I got massively frustrated actually. And I used to be doing demonstrations for the kids. And then they'd be sort of standing behind me, sort of coughing, you know, when are we going to get started? And I was just sitting there drawing <laughs> and painting, thinking, why can't I spend time doing this? And I kept on trying to go part time, but it wasn't ever possible for very long. So it took being ill to really sort of kick me. To go, what the hell are you doing? You know, mm. actually, time is passing by now, and you know, if you want to spend some time being creative, then you've got to do something about it. So it was kind of useful because it meant that my head had to consider. I think it's a, I don't know, it's an HR thing. They have to consider my request to go part time seriously, mm. and they have to justify why it's not possible mm. to do. So that helped me to go part time. Um, as did my mother who also gave me some money to help me so that was massively useful and the initial plan though when I was diagnosed after a few months I started working um, wanted to I thought what if you know if you weren't going to be around much longer what what would you do with that time mm. and I want to came up with this idea when I was in hospital of a story about this girl um, who had magical powers uh, and she could collect shadows in a bottle which you could suck people's shadows away mm. it was called Shadows uh, and that was the book I was planning on working on mm. and I got a bit of it published in Strumpet, Ellen Lindner's mm. Strumpet um, and it's ended up going on the back burner so I've done several versions of it um, but then I thought okay I'm not really getting anywhere with that so I'm going to leave it and then I started working on The Inflatable Woman, it was something I thought about after I was diagnosed and then I realised I couldn't work on it while I was going through the treatments because it was too stressful. Mm. Um, so yes, it was, a, it was an idea. There was three mm. projects I wanted to work on uh, and I'm gradually getting through. I've done one, so I've got two more <laughs> to get through. Um, so having yes. left comics, you're now actually fully yeah, to, it, doing it was kind of Actually, no, it was Nick Abadzis, um, mm. he was who used to work for Deadline. Uh, 
and is now living in New York. Mm. And I was sending him the shadow stuff and talking to him about another book I'd worked on for eight years. It was a kid's book that never oh, got okay. anywhere. Uh, and I've got all these paintings and I've never done anything with it because the story's not that good, actually. It kind of had issues with it. Um, and he oh, just kept on saying... you kind of used an extract for the Observer Short Story competition? No. Okay. That's from Shadows. Ah. Now, this was called The Wolf Who Lost His Hat. And <laughs> I kind of came up with the paintings before I wrote the story, which isn't a great way to do things, really. Well, you um, say that, but we had a guy come and talk at Cartoon County last year mm. who did an entire graphic novel about kind of stuffed animals, teddy bears and whatnot, flying spaceships and getting into battles. And having drawn the whole thing, he then hired a writer to add the... Uh, the dialogue yeah. which is a crazy way of doing things yeah I just but, found myself you know. getting very confused and I came up with the idea but well, it wasn't my idea I saw an interview with Anthony Brown the one who does all the gorillas um, kids books mm. which are amazing and that's how he said he works and I thought oh that creates that sort of surreal element that he's got but it didn't really work with me mm. I don't think um but yeah, it was Nick who kind of encouraged me to get back into cartoons and kept saying, yeah, but I'd like to see you getting back into doing the sort of stuff you used to do. Mm. And then I started thinking about the inflatable woman again. Mm. So, I mean, you initially serialised it online. Mm. Um, would that have been uh, a reasonable kind of way of publishing it if you hadn't had a book deal? Or was the offer from Bloomsbury there from the beginning and you just wanted to try it out on an audience? No, um, the Bloomsbury offer came about episode 13. Oh wow, okay. Uh, and I was thinking by that point, I'm getting quite close to finishing this now and mm. it's not looking like anyone's going to go for it. Uh, and then it all sort of worked out. Mm. But I did have a little conversation with myself, well would you carry on even if mm. you didn't get it published? And I thought, well yeah I would because it's something that I need to do. And it was actually nice I enjoyed blogging it and mm. getting feedback and you know you'd send it to your friends like a little present every mm. month and yeah I got a lot out of it and I hadn't really I mean I guess the thing to think of would have had to be self-publishing maybe crowdfunding that mm. probably would have been the next step and yeah. that seems to be often very successful yeah definitely to people so I mean it, it's a really unusual format the um Generally, it's only one panel uh, per page, sometimes mm. two or three, and the shape um, of the panel changes from page to page. So how did that kind of construction come about? Did you start with the drawing and just see how far it went? <laughs> you know? um, well, initially, I was doing that when I was working on Shadows, and mm. that came about after seeing Hugo Cabray. Okay. You know that the mm. Brian mm. Selznick book yeah. that was made into a film, and that's his format. It's all pencil. It's one image per page, and I was like, "Oh wow, it's allowed." I could try something like that. <laughs> and then when I wanted to do it online, and I looked at online comics, and I've got a really, well, I had a really slow, rubbish computer, um, and I kept on having to sort of, you know, enlarge pages, and it was a bit of a nightmare. And I thought this isn't very effective, actually. One image per time, people mm. can read it easily, they're not going to get bored, they're not going to switch off and everything. Um, so that was the logic of that. The sort of organic shapes, uh, it, I think it's kind of because I'm a bit lazy, <laughs> and I'm too lazy to measure things really, mm. you know, no, I actually don't find that very appealing, mm. all that grid, and I did it with a deadline for years and it got my nerves, all the mm. measuring and stuff, so I thought why, okay just do, mm. just do this instead, and it looked nice next to the blacks. So. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that you'd spend a few years, I guess, just doing one-off illustrations for, mm. for various jobs, because there's still the odd page that works perfectly well as a gag strip in isolation. Mm. My favourite being this one of the two penguins, yeah. where one is dressed as Maria from The Sound of Music, and the other one says, it's my turn to wear the habit. Yeah, and I love I like that those. kind of humour yeah. that you're using to offset the far more serious story. That yeah, but that's, uh, that's intentional, because it's a bit heavy. Mm. Oh, yeah. So I thought if you get like your sort of Shakespearean comedy act sort of mm. popping in, then it sort of loosens up things a bit. I think it's a nice balance. Mm. I mean, I think your use of, for want of a better term, the unreliable narrator um, in this book is really interesting. It reminded me um, of, I don't know if you've seen the film Birdman that came out this time last year. No, but I know what you mean. Um, I'm going to spoil it for everyone, so stick your fingers in your ears. Um, it, the very first time we see Michael Keaton on screen, it's about two minutes into the film, he's floating a foot above the floor. And so you think, okay, so... Is the world that we're viewing one where Michael Keaton can fly, and that's the base norm? And then when he has fantasies about robots attacking the city, you know, that's a fantasy. Or 
is he the only person who thinks that he floats mm. a foot above the ground and to everyone else is he actually sitting on the floor and is he crazy throughout yeah. and it's that kind of like frisson between what is real and what is unreal in your book I think is, is really interesting because you don't know what is the baseline reality in a world mm. with talking singing penguins yeah. or which is a dream sequence and which isn't yeah I've never thought about it that way actually mm. um, I think with me I was just thinking what what is the main point of telling the story and I kind of wanted to try and put across anxiety hmm. I suppose it was one of, not the only one but one of the big reasons for doing it was try to yeah try to evoke a lot of the feelings you go through when you're going through hospital treatments and hmm. stuff and that's not the only thing it makes it sound a bit boring but um, so a lot of the visual metaphors are to do with that hmm. and I think it's yeah, quite easy to forget that people might be looking at it and going is that really happening or is that <laughs> the imagination or not so yeah I'm hmm. not sure when I was consciously doing that, I think I was consciously doing that to my audience. Yeah. Well, I suppose the, the most important realism is just uh, how genuine the emotions are mm. that the main character is feeling, and that is something that does come across very strongly. Yeah, because yeah. actually a lot of the stuff that comes across as being quite surreal actually were things that I would believed were happening. Mm. So there's a couple in the story who I refer to, I don't think I've ever referred to, as the dead couple. There's a very mm. tall, skinny bloke who looks like mm. a yeah, skull. Kind of Edmund Gorey. Yeah, and a very, yes, very Edmund Gorey, wonderful. Um, and actually there was an occasion, soon after I was diagnosed, when I was, um, I think I was walking down Tottenham Court Road, and I saw this couple both dressed in black and it was like they were blind but they weren't and I thought they, they were just sort of grinning at me and they were really they seemed to be following me but they weren't I'm sure they were just minding their own business and then I got on the tube about an hour later and I turned around and they were there again really close to me <laughs> and sort of staring at me and it was all packed and it was claustrophobic and I was stressed and worried about yeah. everything and I remember being convinced that they were deaf that they were coming to get me and I, I waited at we were at Vauxhall and the doors opened and the doors were about to close and I leapt out so they couldn't follow me. <laughs> Take but there that was, yeah, there was a lot of stuff in there like paper, her being attacked by paper dolls. Mm. That was an image I had when I was panicking. Was, I imagine all these paper dolls marching down the road mm. and then blood sort of soaking through them. You know, so. mm. Which is one of the few examples of colour in it as well. Yes, which yeah, that was good. They were happy to do that because that was a bit more expensive, I think, to stick a bit of colour in. <laughs> um, you spoke about uh, the reproduction of art. And I guess, you know, when you're working for um, zines or even Deadline, uh, there they might want a far more ex expressive, darker, inkier line. But with the... Um, we seem to be at a moment in time, even when supposedly everyone's buying e-books, um, it's actually quite cheap to do decent reproduction in print so that mm. must be something that's actually great as a graphic novelist to be at that moment of time where you can do a 500 page graphic novel where it's perfect reproduction oh, of yeah, your yeah. pencil it's lovely yeah and it's very economical because you can or efficient rather you can just work on stuff anywhere you know in a field on the train in a pub mm. you know you don't have to get all the stuff out you know that's that's very immediate that's mm. nice about it was it actually kind of like an act of uh, cutting and pasting, like taking images out of your sketchbook and putting them on a the yes. black? Yes. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> no, I worked on a mountain of sketchbooks from Cass. And, okay. Uh, yeah, just, just cutting out a bit of glue, stick it down, black paper. Yeah, <laughs> did you, how much did you plan the plot and the script in advance? I mean, did you know it was going to be 540 um, odd pages? I think there's an image right at near the end actually of this which is, just shows I had about two or three pages of notes and that was the plot. Uh, so yeah, that one, you oh, go that, back yeah. Wow. there. Yeah. So I think I had something like that but it went up to about, I don't know, seven, 14 and each mm. one of those says what I thought was going to happen and then I would script it at the beginning of each month when I'd just finished I'd have a break and then I'd script it and then I would do a really rubbish storyboard with Stickman mm. and then get straight down to it mm. so yeah I mean I mean the good I mean not the good the thing about having an experience like being diagnosed getting ill getting worse getting better and then the stuff in between the romantic stuff um, gave it quite a, a clear mm. non-messy 
plot arch mm. really um, so yeah I think that made it quite straightforward to do mm. um, and then just any random images and ideas I think I just scribbled lots of stuff down and then kind of went through them and went yeah that works there that works there mm. and then some things when I came to do it I thought actually you don't need that that's just decoration take that out Mm. I think I kept on writing down a lot, trim the fat, <coughs> trim the fat. So I just kept on going through and going, don't need that, don't need that. Oh, I really like it, but I don't need it. Mm. And that was kind of the way I plotted it, really. And did that continue even with the uh, page construction? So if you had uh, a vignette that needed three panels on the page rather than one, was that something you knew in advance, or did it actually come from kind of putting it into a book? Um, I mean, also, there was... Once the book was all finished with um, Alexa at Bloomsbury, she was great at the editing as well. And we would, I think we went through the whole book about four times, just, okay, does that need to be there? And it was easy to do as well because it being one image per page, you could just go, no, take that one out. Oh, it works much better. Let's stick another one in. Mm. Um, and I'm not digital, so I'm sure lots of other people here would know how to just move something, stick something in, make something bigger. I wouldn't know how to do that, so, yeah. Mm. But actually, I, I think, you know, as a uh, an encouragement to other artists, because it feels so non-digital, it actually feels like you're listening, oh, I could make a comic, mm. maybe not as well drawn as mm. yours, but, uh, but in terms of something that's constructed through uh, drawings in a sketchbook that you assemble into yeah. a graphic novel, actually, it feels quite a, you know, a, a liberating promotional, you know, object. Oh, that's good. Was I mean obviously the the illness was something that was um, semi autobiographical. How about the online dating? <laughs> and that, that was uh, yeah that that was kind of based on reality. I mean actually mm. when I go through most of it, it's like yeah most of it is kind of real in some way. And it was I was doing a bit of Guardian Soulmates internet dating. I kept on sort of dipping in and out. I'm not very good at it because I get sort of too freaked out by mm. everything. Um, but there was somebody I was writing to. And we would be, we got quite friendly, but it was more platonic, really. Mm. And then when I told him that I was diagnosed, he was very supportive. He's like, he's going to mm. write to me every day. And then through that, then I started getting very attached because mm. I was going through this big stressful experience. And he was there being really lovely and sending me funny things and, I don't know, funny cats or whatever, you know. Um, yeah, so that lasted for about four months. So there was that uh, idea of, okay, we being quite delusional mm. came out of that are you presenting to me he was quite a fantasist as well so that was entertaining mm. you know um, so it became a, a strong idea of I'm presenting the best side of me and you're presenting mm. the best side of you and I'm pretending I'm being platonic when actually I'm getting really attached here and uh, so yeah definitely came out of that it wasn't a sailor though no, he didn't pretend that he'd he moved didn't to pretend the pole to be a to, sailor to though no. <laughs> did you meet in real life yeah we met okay. two times and then we had a bit of an argument and then that was it <laughs> uh, no no because I, I declared my uh, massive feelings and you know and then he was like uh, no don't feel that way uh, and then yeah that kind of led to a bit of a meltdown which is in the book on that bombshell, um, if anyone in the audience uh, has any questions for Rachel, yeah, I've got a, I've got one might be a bit intrusive. I'm sorry. I just I think just expressing some curiosity. Um, you mentioned your illness. Was it what we expected possibly to have been, or was it something different? Were you, would you would you would you like to? Go into it or what? Did I expect the experience to be like it was? Yeah, well, what, what was the illness? Oh, I had, no, I had um, breast cancer. Right. So, um, yeah, and I had a mastectomy and a chemotherapy and radiotherapy and all that kind of stuff. That's a um, that's massive, uh, a massive experience. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure whether it was like I... I mean, you just go through so many things. It's like being... I think the whole thing is quite interesting. It's... Because you're kind of being taken apart, it's like you're being deconstructed, and then emotionally with the chemotherapy, it makes you go slightly loopy. They're pumping you with steroids at the same time as the chemotherapy to help you cope with everything, so you get really hyper, as well as sort of slightly falling apart and hair coming out. And so it's just, yeah, it's really a quite a dark experience, but you also 
advise anybody who's faced any sort of illness, you get a, a sense of a bit of a wake-up call of, of really embracing life as well. Um, so it is a really weird mixture of experiences. And then I went slightly bonkers as well as sort of, oh, I'm going to make the most of my life, I'm going to start you know, doing everything I want to do, but it was like, yeah, but you're supposed to be going to hospital, so, you know, calm down, so, um, yeah, so weird, but I think life's often like that, really harsh, difficult things often kind of come with something, some, I don't know, it's a bit hard to say joyful, but something almost good, I wouldn't like to say they're positive experiences, because that's a terrible thing to say, but they can, and wonderful experiences can come with dark packages as well, can't mm. they? So It makes you appreciate the good. Exactly, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, the people who are there for you and, you know, that's what's important and things. Yeah. And you wanted, and that was why you wanted to do a, uh, the major project, was that the, the spur to do the major I think at the time, when I was diagnosed, it sort of occurred to me after about two weeks, I had that sort of little objective artist's voice in your head going, oh, this would make a very interesting story, which, which wasn't necessary to do with art therapy, this is going to be really good for you, you need to get this out. It was just sort of, I think this would be interesting, you know, so, um, yeah, I think I just kind of, part of me, when I was thinking, why do this? And who's going to benefit and everything? I kind of thought, yeah, I think when you get down to it, I think this is a good story. I think it's a potentially interesting and, yeah. So mm. I think that was more the reason. But having said that, I did realise that some chapters, if things were unpleasant, like this, I did have a bit of a meltdown at the hospital and a panic attack and stuff. Um, and I really hated, there's a scene when Iris has a panic attack, and I really hated doing that chapter, and it's quite a long chapter, and it just brought all these memories back, of, of, if anyone's ever had a panic attack, it's my first ever, and they are really, really horrible. I can remember thinking, I'd rather be dead than experiencing this, and this sort of feeling of escalating and escalating, and mm. you know, claustrophobia, wanting to get out and stuff, mm. so. And everything yeah. you've—that's all part of the book, is it? It's all described in a book as well. In uh, yeah, I mean, at this image here, um, I think with anything, when you're having a lot of treatments for quite a long time, they just wear you down, you know. And it's just seen whenever you go to the hospital, somebody was sticking a needle in you, and they're all wonderful people who are there trying to help you and do the best for you and stuff. But you just get really fed up with what next, you know, needle, mm. needle jab. So, yeah. Um, I think that scene I'm trying to show the sort of repetitiveness and the unrelentingness of, of stuff that keeps keeps going on and keeps happening. Mm. And is that so, so you would describe that as therapeutic when you did that? I, I didn't intend it to be, I think it probably was. Um, and then there were some scenes that are lighter, you know, they're just fun to do. The ones that were more fictionalised were just fun. The ones that, yeah, brought back memories of things were a bit. Yeah, you know, there's a sort of there's a bunch of people who uh, do comics uh, for medicine mm. and for Ian Williams and yeah, yeah, medicinal means and stuff like that too, because yeah. it's it, it not only demonstrates uh, procedures but it also does act as a kind of therapy. Yeah, you, you have your viewpoints on that that it's uh, it is you know that expressing yourself like painting or anything is mm -hmm. like you know is, is therapeutic for anybody going through that yeah but probably all i mean all artwork is therapeutic in a way isn't it if you feel the need to do it then it's it's filling your soul and just like we eat food we need to feed our souls so who, who do you yeah. think it looks for who did you have an audience in mind when you were drawing it um no no i don't think yeah i don't think i did really i i kind of felt I mean, to me, I, I think it it's it would appeal. It could appeal to anybody. <laughs> but I mean, just sort of that thing of going through life and thinking you were going one way, and then taking stock and going, actually, what? Why am I here? And dealing with disappointments and having the strength to carry on when life shoots you down. I mean, that happens to everybody, really. So it wasn't intended as a sort of medical audience to people who've been through cancer but I have had a few people who who had gone through breast cancer and you know 
liked reading it because of that and they found it helpful which is brilliant um, I wouldn't have thought it was a good thing to read while you're going through cancer treatments because I thought it might be very stressful but maybe not I don't know mm. when you were making it were you a cartoonist quite about the subject or were you the subject and doing the cartoon at the same time did you um, was there a distance by the time yeah, I think it was a, a bit of distance because I'd finished my treatments in December and I started planning it in summer and I started working on it in October. So there was, what, about 10 months distance from it. Um, I mean, actually, is it a bit, sorry, a bit <coughs> further on, there's drawings of the characters. And initially, I was trying to come up there. Yeah, I was trying to come up with the characters. So this was uh, one of the first ones and I was sort of trying to get someone who looked a bit like me, you know, sort of long face, like with long nose. Into chemotherapy. Yeah, and, um, and I got really obsessed with trying to make her look like me, and then sometimes I think, oh, people think she looks too young, or, or, or whatever, or not really like me, or am I trying to flatter myself, or whatever. And then it was like, well, this is kind of silly, because she's starting to think of stuff which is irrelevant, because it shouldn't matter what you know, it's irrelevant what you look like. No one's going to know necessarily, um, and that somehow felt like it wasn't working. Like, well, I was planning, thinking about script ideas or conversations. Um, it would kind of come out a little bit like a soap, almost. I think in trying to be realistic, mm. for, it just felt a bit turgid. It wasn't working. And then I came up with this character, the one with the just just dots for eyes, and I really liked her. I think that's me beginning to get to the inflatable woman titles. So I've got this character, the invisible woman. Um, and I quite liked her, but it was difficult to express lots of emotions when she's only got two dots for eyes. Um, and yeah, and then I came up with her. I mean, very often when you come up with characters you like, it's often when you're not concentrating and you're doing something else, isn't it? And then you look down mm. and go, oh, wow, well, okay, I quite, I like her. She's got, I think there's a, the size, her being small, I liked because there's this thing of going through hospital treatments, it, you're a bit infantilised. Mm. So I thought, okay, so she's small. I thought, okay, she's small, that's a bit appealing. But then she's a bit odd as well. She's got this big Les Dawson chin <laughs> kind of thing. So I, I quite like that. Um, and once she stopped looking anything like me, it, it's just like the doors opened and the conversation started coming out. Um, I was chatting to my friend Nikki, who I was at college with, and... We were talking about what job she should do and I think I wanted her to work on boats and I wanted to be like a fisherwoman and she would take people on trips and then Nikki went, well why don't, why isn't she a zookeeper or something and mm. I was like, zookeeper? Oh, yeah, because she could have all these animals and they would talk and all these new characters. So yeah, that was that way in, really. But this character on the right, Dr Vida, which I think is Greek for water or something. Um, she does look very much like uh, my surgeon, and two surgeons, so Dr. Magic and Joe. Um, and yeah, she looked a lot like that. She was incredibly sympathetic. And I felt a bit mean actually, because there's a scene where she, she tells Iris that she's got breast cancer and she's just weeping and weeping and all these tears are pouring out and I thought I'd hate Joe to think I was taking the piss out of her because I wasn't, she was such a wonderful woman mm. but I was slightly exaggerating her mm. I mean, on the morning cry? of my, sorry? Did Joe cry when she told you? No, but she was just so incredibly, yeah. you know Because if you're a doctor and you burst into tears every time you No, but she was so <laughs> compassionate I mean, yeah. on the day of my surgery she kind of, I was sort of sitting there thinking, oh my god, what am I doing? And she kind of ran into the room all of a sudden and just came over and gave this big hug. And I thought, oh, okay, now I can do this. Yes, you know, I'm all right. So she was just, I just thought she was incredible. She was talking to people and telling them bad news every day, but she could mm. do it with such compassion and style. Mm. So, Had she seen her avatar? I, I don't know, actually, because I ended up having, um, takes quite, when you're having reconstruction surgery, it takes mm. quite a few years. So I've only just finished about last September, so a few months ago. And I had a different surgeon by this point, Dr. Fahadi, wonderful. And I gave him I gave him the book. So yeah, it'd be nice to give it to Joe as well and mm. Dr. Magic. To Joe <laughs> yeah. who didn't cry. Yes. <laughs>
Any other questions? Can I just ask you, uh, what, what attracted you to comics in the first place? Because it's not a question mm. that I've heard you being asked. What, right. Yeah, what was, the, what was the thing that really thought you made you think that comics are so good? I mean, I was I mean, probably like lots of people, I was a big comic reader when I was growing up. It was Tammy and Ginty and Bunty and Misty and, you know, I have to have them every week. I think I had a, a mountain pile in the garage. Um, and we had a, quite a few sort of comic books when I was growing up. Jules Pfeiffer, Passionella and 666. And actually, I think Iris looks a bit like, um, you ever read Passionella? Um, I don't know if anyone's ever read Passionella. Ella was a chimney sweep. It's wonderful. Mm. It's really, really good. Um, but I think she looks a little bit like Iris, which wasn't conscious. Mm. Um, and what else did we have? Yeah, we had a fantastic book by Thor Heyerdahl from the Contiki expedition that my dad <laughs> had bought. Really beautiful book, if anyone's ever seen it or not seen it, you should get it. Uh, and it's just beautiful drawings of the expedition, the Contiki one, of sailing over Wales. And So, yeah, I think, oh, the Giles, we have lots of Giles uh, comic books as well. So they were always kind of there. I actually remember the first drawings I did were copying pictures from those. Um, yeah, so I don't know if I'd consciously thought why did I want to do it, but it was always there waiting, I think, in the background. You said it was waiting, but there's a sort of gap between Tammy and stuff, and then uh, Jules Pfeiffer. So mm. what was happening between that? Um, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, it was, it's quite, I mean, I, I'd, I'd quite like to sit down and, and read some of those Tammy and Ginty's. I think lots of those are quite dark stories mm. as well. I mean, they, Jules Fife is political and lots of his stuff is symbolic and fairy tale-ish, but actually it's got sort of serious messages. But a lot of those stories I can remember reading were quite strange and spooky and odd. And there was one about Alpha and Beta characters and they were that was almost almost like political for quite young people really. Um, but there was a I, big gap between Tammy and Jules Wife for me. Was yeah, probably. I really don't know. I don't know. I, I, it's something. Were you I'd, just I'd not reading to, comics then, or was I not reading comics when? Yeah, after Tammy, because you know Tammy. Well, no, I had to stop. Like, I had to stop because I was getting too old, and I, <laughs> I kept on doing it till I was fifteen, and I and I was also I had a. Uh, two best friends and we just used to play his imagination games all the time and they would go on for about five or six hours and then we became very aware that this just wasn't cool anymore and mm -hmm. uh, it was like our secret we couldn't tell anybody we didn't talk about it but anyone else was around and I got I can remember being embarrassed going to buy comics at about 15 or 16 it was like I was asking for porn you know <laughs> it was like I've got to stop doing this now which is terrible that's such a shame you know I should mm -hmm. be reading Jackie what you're playing at, I should have been, well, 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 that was weird, we were going to clubs and reading comics and kind of playing with dolls all at the same time, you know. Um, so, yeah, I don't know, yeah, it was a shame it stopped because it was a sort of peer pressure. Um, and you discovered it with Jules Blythe? Yeah, well, I suppose it's through college. I mean, I was doing choreographing dance pieces, which is what we did, and they just gradually became more and more, less and less to do with movement and shape and more to do with narratives. I used to go to, I can't remember it's called now, it's a fantastic little cinema, is it Duke's Duke of York? Yeah, Duke of York. We used to live around the corner on Springfield Road and they used to have film showings uh, all night and everyone would sit there with their coffee and fag <laughs> till about four or five o'clock in the morning and then stumble out and we'd go and see the most amazing films like Novicento and all sorts of stuff. That was my, my friend Nicky got me <laughs> my sort of arty film education um, and that, yeah, that, that was my replacement, I guess, for cartoon strips for a number of years. Um, yeah, film, cartoons, very similar. In uh, the old days of Deadline and then the comic scene now, what have you, is there any difference? What's I, I really wasn't very involved in the comic scene. I was living in Manchester and I just used to take my... I don't know, I can't remember how I used to send it now. I used to go on the train or something, some sort of courier or something, and send it up to London. And then I moved to London when I was about 26. And then I used to just go and drop it off. I'd stay up all night for about five nights doing it. 
and I, I would go to bed about six o'clock in the morning and sleep for a few hours and I'd guess I can just be drawing and colouring in with bloody colour pencil and stuff mm-hmm. um, and then I would drop off and I'd be so knackered I, I would just go home so I hear people talking about this um, kind of wildlife that people had who worked for Deadline probably quite a few of them did but I, I wasn't I wasn't part of it I knew of a few people like Nick and Steve Whitaker mm. um, sadly dying but yeah we used to do some workshops together mm. um, for educational cartoon stuff and Griselda Grislingham who's based in Brighton cartoonist for Spectator, New mm. Statesman, Private Eye, places like that, that political one-off, very funny stuff. Um, she doesn't seem to be involved in the comic scene at all, actually, we'll but yeah, she's been around for like 20, yeah, you should do, she lives in Hamlet, mm. um, about 25 years. Uh, yeah, so that was kind of it, I think, really, for me. I've also got a really bad memory. I kind of <laughs> meet people sometimes, they're going, oh, it's you, we met years mm. ago, and I was like, did we? I really don't remember. But, um, Although when you were yeah. doing sort of the, the feminist scenes with people like Corin, oh, yeah, were there any Corrin. small press events that you went to? Not a lot. I can remember going to some event and meeting Jim Woodring, which was brilliant. <laughs> you know, that was fantastic, lovely. So I did go things a little bit. I went to Ongolem, mm. but all I remember about Ongolem is just getting very drunk, I think. <laughs> I think it was great that he goes to these cafes with big round tables and everyone sit around chatting and. They just keep bringing you more drinks and then you stagger home. And I, I had a, a five-minute appointment with the publisher of Fantagraphics and he said, OK, I'm going to give you two minutes to convince me why I should publish your work. And I just sort of went, because it's good. And that's all <laughs> I could say. And I thought, yeah, I'm not surprised you didn't take me on this. Um, but I've got much more involved, involved this time, really. Mm. Um, and when I was going through my treatments and stuff I was going to the Haven which is a, a charity um, which kind of features in the book as well and you get nine free treatments of your choice to help support you while you're having chemotherapy and everything and I decided to go for uh, an emotional freedom treatment counsellor called Gosha Gorna and um, did all sort of weird stuff like tapping which is supposed to release fears but yeah talking about you know just sorting your life out and where you want to go with it and um a wonderful woman eve warren who was a life coach so i had all i thought god this is fantastic it's what rich people probably do i went for life coaching and need emotional freedom and all this sort of stuff um and they really helped me sort out what i um wanted to do with my future but eve also said i think you should go and sort of network and you need to find your tribe you know, <laughs> people who do the stuff that you do so that's when I went to ladies right um, and that was a great thing to do because I didn't really get why it's really beneficial to be with lots of people mm. who like doing what you like doing yeah and that just it's a really nice thing anyway socially mm. but actually it's also good for networking and mm. I think I always thought networking sounded like a bad word but actually it's not it's nice people helping each other that's kind mm. of what it is yeah and so, ladies do comics is really supportive yeah that. we're complete bastards oh it's fantastic here. oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i like the cartoon museum as yeah. well and, yeah cool how was the process of getting published with the um how did you find that i think i mean that that was very helpful because that was through going to ladies really because nicola uh streeton and sarah lightman but Nicola Streeton has an agent and she was looking for cartoonists and Nicola recommended me um, and then yeah so she just sort of went oh well, I'd like to show your work to Bloomsbury um, and I went yeah right <laughs> so I was just I was really lucky I went through a period about a year before of trying to get an agent and I was sending stuff to places that was the book I'd been working on the children's book which I didn't mm. think was that great um, and then I kind of gave up so actually that was a much more useful way of going about things really mm. I had sent it to a few publishers I sent it to Jonathan Cape who's the bloke who's the editor at Jonathan Cape? Dan Franklin he was really snooty <laughs> in, in response actually but, so he turned it down but I did find that a bit snooty 
just I'll say that. <laughs> well, then it doesn't hurt as well. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, I think the book's terrific, but as there is, like David said, this whole graphic medicine genre within comics now, I guess that makes it easier to, to pitch it to a publisher because it is a recognisable thing. Yeah. If yours was the only magical realist book about breast cancer out there, then it might be more difficult to convince a publisher that there's a market for it. Yeah, yeah, possibly. I mean, I did send it to them quite early. It was about chapter four or something, so it was early days. Mm. Following up on that, it seems to me there's a lot of graphic novels and memoirs about my medical issues or my emotional issues or my health issues. Done by people, it's their first comic, almost. Yeah. And then they get published. Where do they go next? They're not necessarily going to have another big book story. You're a cartoonist who's come and taken that. A real life event, and you've actually gone back and reworked it and made it more than just a verbatim report of what you went through. Mm. So, presumably, your next book will be something else, and you, your next project will be something else. Do you think that's going to give you a greater breadth and the ability to get a second, yeah. third, fourth project out there? Yeah, um, I was a bit panicky actually while I was doing it because I thought I won't, that's it, I won't be able to do anything else. Uh, and yeah, and then I think it gave us a bit of pressure having an agent there sort of saying, come you know, we'll have a meeting and you'll tell me what your other ideas are. I was like, <laughs> other ideas? So I've got a big file of ideas splurged out. But there's a few images at the end, actually, of the book I'm working on at the moment. Um, it's called Wolfman. And I know there's a book called The Wolfman already, hmm. self-made hero to hmm. do with Freud. Hmm. But I can't give up on the title because I really hmm. like it. So <laughs> it's staying. Um, and this is all, there's a, a risk here of this uh, becoming like a series of emotional porn, as my <laughs> friend calls it, um, stories. But this is based on my father died when I was six, and most of it is fictionalised, but it's kind of based on that experience of as a family mm. growing up without their father or um, dealing with uh, the death of a parent. And the little boy who was on the earlier image, Hugo, uh, this is early on. Him and his father go for a walk in the forest together and all go off for a picnic. And he strays and he comes across this wolf. And they have this moment where they're kind of eyeballing each other. Uh, and then the wolf runs away and he becomes kind of significant. And then he climbs up onto the tree stump. And that's him with his father. And that's at the beginning they talk about how the tree is, um, yeah, a living timeline, literally touching the past. And there's this, lots of references in the story to wanting to go back to the past, wanting to change things and wanting to go back and warn his dad before his dad dies. Uh, and, yeah, he wants to find a way to go back in time mm. to rescue his father. So that's what the story is that I'm working on at the moment. It is a, a classic trope in time travel films. Yes. Uh, well, there's going to be a scene, which I haven't started working on yet, but where they, they sit and watch the time machine together. Ah, well, I was going to say it's in 12 Monkeys and Vertigo. Oh, is it? Oh, and okay. Leggete. Oh, is it? Right, okay, well, I'll check that out then. Sorry. That's right. Cool. No, I think you should stick with Wolfman. There's plenty of room. Oh, yeah, well, I've done quite a lot. I've done about that much anyway, so. Rachelball.tumblr.com. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. For more information about Rachel Ball's work, please go to rachelball.tumblr.com. That's R-A-C-H-A-E-L ball.tumblr.com. And for more information about all the graphic novels published by Bloomsbury, please go to bloomsbury.com. For more information about Cartoon County, please go to cartooncounty.com. Between now and the next Cartoon County, there are various comic book events taking place across London. Right now, at the House of Illustration Gallery, 2 Granary Square, near King's Cross Station, they're displaying the exhibition Comics Creatrix, 100 Women Making Comics, showcasing the work of 100 female comic book artists from over the last couple of centuries. This exhibition is joined by a complimentary show about girls' shoujo manga, which opens on the 19th of March. 
and you can find more information about both exhibitions by going to houseofillustration.org.uk. At the Forbidden Planet Megastore on Shaftesbury Avenue, long-running Spider-Man writer Dan Slott will be in the store from 6 to 7pm on Wednesday the 9th of March, signing the latest Spider-Man collected editions, as well as his run on the Silver Surfer comic. And then on the following Wednesday, March the 16th, again from 6 to 7pm, Doctor Who writer and novelist Ben Aronovich will be joined by comic book writer Andrew Carmel for the new comic book version of Aronovich's series of novels, Rivers of London. For more information about all Forbidden Planet events, please go to ForbiddenPlanet.com. Just down the road at Orbital Comics, 8 Great Newport Street near Leicester Square Tube, they have a life drawing class on Friday, March the 11th from 7.30 to 9.30pm with models who are being dressed as Tarzan Jane and La the Queen of Opar and invite people who want to have experience of anatomy and creating action comics by going along to Orbital on Friday the 11th from 7.30pm with tickets at £15. The following day, on the 12th of March, from 5pm, they have a signing of the 50th issue of IDW's Transformers comic, and writer James Roberts will be in the store signing from 5pm, and then giving a director's commentary later that evening, with tickets available from Orbital's website. For more information about all Orbital events, please go to orbitalcomics.com. At Gosh Comics, 1 Berwick Street in Soho, they also have a Rivers of London signing, which is taking place on March the 18th from 7pm. And if you're a fan of superhero comics, on the 16th of March from 7pm, there's the latest Capers meetup in Gosh Comics, where they'll be discussing Deadpool. Looking ahead to April on the 1st, Jamie McKelvey, Kieran Gillen, Julia Scheel, Tom Humberston and Sarah Gordon will be signing the latest collection of Phonogram, The Immaterial Girl, in Gosh, from 7pm. And you can find more information about all Gosh events by going to goshlondon.com. Panel Borders was recorded, edited and introduced by Alex Fitch, is a Panel Borders production, and you can find all previous episodes on my blog www.panelborders.wordpress.com and there'll be a new episode on the second Tuesday of next month at 8pm. Thanks for listening. This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.